Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Is the concept of mother blame a method to control women? Is motherhood really a fearsome job? Will a mother's mistake or inattention damage a child? Is this different from the fear that fathers have about the safety of their children? A potent spell, Mother Love and the Power of Fear, is a recent book written by Jana Malamud Smith, a clinical psychotherapist and the daughter of writer Bernard Malamud. Smith argues that the motherhood fear of losing a child is central to motherhood and mostly overlooked as a historical force that has induced mothers throughout time to shape their own lives to better shelter their young, often at the expense of their own future. I spoke with Dr. Jana Malamud-Smith from her home in Massachusetts and asked her to begin by discussing the different level of fear that fathers and mothers have towards their children. The kind of fear I was describing was the fear that comes out of feeling very responsible for the life of your child and very vulnerable about guiding your child safely through the world. And it looks as if or feels as if to me and to the mothers I interviewed that because moms are are more proximate to kids, because mothers are there from day one and just are usually the ones who end up doing more of the intimate care earlier, though not always anymore, but have most of the time through history done that, um, we tend to be the ones whose alarm systems get totally wired into our perceptions about our kids' well-being, I think on a different level than most dads. Do you think that that's genetically connected or it's because of the proximity that, that you mentioned? It's, it's, that's a really good question. I don't think that the biologists who are looking at this know that answer yet. I think some people would say, oh, there's uh, you know different chemicals, oxytocin and other things that maybe contribute to women having this sense of alarm, but I don't think anybody knows for sure yet. Um, I bet it's going to be some mix. Well, do we distinguish a sense of alarm from a sense of connectedness to the offspring, like we would see um, among other species, uh, animals in the wild? They know which baby is theirs, and that baby knows which mother is its. Right, and I bet we have some solidarity with all those species in that sense, you know, you can envision in your mind's eye a little chimpanzee fleeing into its mother's arms when it gets startled by something, and the mother looking around it when she hears the alarm cry and finding her own baby. And it may well be that that's a piece of what I'm trying to describe. But, you know, in humans, things get elaborated often fairly uniquely and more extensively and certainly idiosyncratically. And I think that... Um, what what I am so aware of in human mothers is the way they both put a lot of thought to keeping their children safe and a lot of feeling into it. And that once a mom attaches to an infant, um, what was so striking to me in writing the book, and of course in my own experiences as a mom, was realizing how much attachment turns mothers' whole lives on their heads. Is that is that the way to say it? You know what I mean, upside down. Well, what do you mean? Well... I mean that once 
you have a baby and you become attached to that baby, all of a sudden a mom discovers that she's no longer thinking or making plans or trying to keep one person safe. All of a sudden she's thinking 24-7 and making plans and trying to keep at least two people safe and sometimes hordes of people safe if she has a big family. And that that becomes a complex psychological process for her. It's as if psychologically she becomes the head of a jellyfish colony or the or a switchboard operator or somebody who has this very, very complex task that consumes her in a whole new way. From your training and experience as a psychotherapist, um, do you find that there's something unique to the female gender that allows this to occur, or is it more inherent in the human species? That's a, a, a very good question, and I don't, it's another one that I'm afraid I don't know the answer to. I mean, we certainly see that and talk a lot about female connectedness, but I think that one of the funny little things that I learned writing the book that made a big impact on me was to learn that until 150 years ago, you couldn't keep an infant alive with a bottle, or you couldn't keep an infant alive without a living mammal mother next to him, or uh, occasionally a wet nurse. But the point of what I'm saying is that men couldn't raise infants primarily until very, very recently in human history. So it's sort of one of those brand new things we don't really understand terribly well yet. We haven't seen, nobody's done the experiment of taking 100,000 guys and handing them infants and handing them a lot of bottles and saying, okay, let's see what feeling life develops. We know something about it from the devoted fathers and families, but it hasn't really been uh, rigorously explored, should we say. In the past several hundred years, there's been a developing body of literature which followed the um, folklore or the folk lines of how children should be treated that, in a way, you imply have fostered and manipulated the way uh, mothers in particular treat their babies. Right. Um, That is indeed true. And let me sort of expand on your point. Maybe three or four hundred years ago, um, advice literature began to come into the world in a bigger way. Changes had happened in the publishing world. People became more literate, and they started reading advice guides. And so I went back and I reread a number of these, and it was a staggering discovery for me. It was, it was just fascinating. Um, let me tell you about one, if I may. In 1674, a man named John Flavel published something called A Token for Mourners, which was, if you can imagine, an advice guide for mothers who had lost their only sons. So it was to advise them in how to mourn the death of a child. And this book became a big seller, both in England, where he wrote it, and in America. And in colonial New England, um, it was in print for 120 years. Any writer's best dream and more nowadays. Um, But what John Flavel said, he had a lot of different pieces of advice. He had lost uh, children himself and lost wives. But one of the things he said that just um, was amazing to me was he said, you know, it could be that if your child has died, it's your fault. It's because you loved your child too much, and you made God jealous because you loved your child too much. And so as I was reading through advice guides and got into the 18th century and then the 19th century, I realized that this same kind of threat threaded its way through all of them. 
that even though the nature of the advice giver changed, it went from minister to doctor and eventually to psychologist or educator, the nature of threat did not change. And that more and more these advice guides both deemed the mother the only important parent, which was something of a historic shift, and said that, by the way, if she made any mistakes, her child was going to die and it was going to be her fault. The concept of nature of threat, um, can you talk about that and how you've seen it shift over the years in your review of this issue? Yes, it's been almost protean. It's been sort of um, remarkable when you think about it. And let me focus on one of the biggest moments of shift. If you read advice guides, you'll discover that until the late 19th century in America, the threat against mothers if they made mistakes was of infant death. So, for example, one of the big best-selling advice guides that came to this country in 1804 was written by a Scottish uh, doctor, a minister-turned-doctor, named uh, William Buchan, who was sort of the Dr. Benjamin Spock of his day. He wrote incredible best-selling books on medical advice, and uh, then after that he wrote an advice guide for mothers. And in it, he explains to mothers that, you know, if you learn to read or if you learn, want to learn to play the piano or become cultivated, you'll probably end up killing a lot of your babies because you'll interfere with your natural instincts and you won't have a clue how to raise an infant and they'll die. Lots of them will die before you learn how to do it. So this is appalling enough, but what we see happening in America is in the late 19th century when the infant mortality and child mortality rates finally go down. And, you know, they, they go down probably for not because of anything people did other than to cover the sewers and to improve nutrition. Um, but when they do go down, you see almost without missing a beat, within a, in a tiny number of years, the advice writers become psychologists and they start telling mothers that they're going to psychologically destroy their children rather than physically kill them. I mean, it's just amazing to, to see it. Why do you think that change occurred? Well, I think, I mean, in the, in the most concrete way it occurred because the infant mortality had gone down enough that children were no longer dying, and so that, uh, you know, you couldn't anymore be so worried about that. As it happened, um, psychology and uh, other professions and the new ideas about more sophisticated education were coming into their own. And a lot of idealism was bound up in this. You know, all over the world we had a movement in the late 19th century that was to be saying that the 20th century was to be the century of the child, and we were to make children's lives better, and we were to get them out of factory work and child labor and um, out of the appalling level of child mortality that existed. And so there was, there was a lot of wonderful stuff that was involved with this, but at the same time it came into cultures that were um, very bent on getting mo keeping moms primarily focused on children and keeping them out of the public realm and keeping them home. And so a lot of it got phrased as increased responsibility for mothers and as about a gillion new ways that moms could blow it and do damage. So to what extent is that, if you see it as such, a primitive or an innate fear uh, that mothers have about losing a child? Well, and this is exactly the core of my book. I mean, one, it, it seems to me that the heart of the matter is that once you've attached to a child as a mother, you're desperate not to have that child die. And, of course, throughout most of history, most mothers lost children. One of my favorite stories in A Potent Spell is 
of Joan of Arc's mother, who I had never known about before, but I learned in the course of my reading that when Joan of Arc was busy um, fighting her way across France, her mother was busy walking 250 miles to a church so that she could pray before a particularly ancient statue of Mary um, and uh, the infant in an effort to save her daughter's life. And I think that that's, a, for me, it's a sort of a specimen story of the way mothers will, um, how urgently they want to keep their children safe. And so what that means, unfortunately, is that the threat of child harm becomes a very, very potent threat for mothers. And part of my book, in the early chapter, I go back and I read through a number of plays by Euripides and other Greek dramatists, and I focus on one or two, but one of the things that seems quite clear to me is that even 2,500 years ago, um, these dramatists were very aware of how profound a mother's attachment was to her child when she was attached, and how much that attachment could be used to keep mothers from rocking the boat and keep them from defying the rules about the way they were supposed to live in the world. I'd like to take a moment and say that this week on Radio Curious, we're talking with Jana Malamud-Smith, a psychotherapist in Boston, Massachusetts, about her recent book called A Potent Spell, Mother Love and the Power of Fear. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Jana, bringing this issue that appears to be primitive, that appears to be, uh, or perhaps is maybe a better description of it, uh, inherent in uh, the human species, bringing it current, what do you propose as a way to recognize it or deal with it in a way that would allow children to grow and freely develop as independent human beings? A great question, and, you know, one of those complicated, vexing, societal, society-wide questions. I, sort of the good news of what I discovered in writing the book is it reminded me, again, how new it is for us to be living in a world where um, women and mothers even have a chance at social equality. Um, you know, the women women have had the vote for fewer than 100 years in America. They've been college-educated for maybe a century. They've been able to own property for maybe a century and a half or sometimes two centuries. But all of this, these rights are brand new. And these, together with technological changes like birth control, are for the first time giving us whole new ways of thinking about how to live in the world as, as women and as men and as cultures. And one of the things that um, is so striking to me about that is that we haven't yet had our social institutions catch up. We are just beginning to struggle with questions like um, good daycare or flexible work hours or uh, child care close to work settings or longer school days or any of the many, many kinds of things we could do in order to meet families in their new configurations. Um, but we haven't yet sort of bitten that bullet in any full-hearted way. So consequently, everybody's 
crunched, everybody's scrambling, trying to jury-rig their way through child-rearing in a society that yet isn't ready to accommodate it, either ideologically or institutionally. And I think that this is a big part of what needs to happen to help moms. Um, I, I think that one of the reasons I wrote the book was really to to reach out to other mothers and to sort of share a solidarity of experience um, and particularly to comfort mothers who might feel that they're the only ones who ever felt as foolish as all of us feel all the time in trying to protect our children. So one of the things that comes from that for me is I became very aware in writing the book of how much the society kind of recklessly presses our alarm buttons and makes moms feel over and over again that if we go out more in the world and if we um, do more in the world and turn our eyes away more from our children a little bit so that our children can do more autonomously in the world, in fact, um, that maybe we're being bad moms and maybe we'll harm them. And we have to turn that around. I want to ask you how that can be turned around, but before we get there, do you think that society recklessly presses our alarm buttons in a different way for girls than for boys? Well, uh, let, let me just sort of qualify recklessly presses since I threw that into the conversation. What I mean is, is that one of the things I found in writing the book was that by reading through tons of popular contemporary magazines and media, um, I found that all they were just filled with um, suggestions about ways you could harm your children. So if you read the mom's magazines, they're often a lot of fun on one level, but on another level, they're endless stories about how this um, pogo stick might harm your kid and this seatbelt isn't good enough and this kid got hurt crossing the street and that child was put in a bad summer camp and um, was endangered or killed and just story after story after story about what could happen to your child. And the reason I think all these stories are out there is that we read them. Um, you know, as a, as, a, as a mom who will read them, I know that you, you, many moms read them because they grip our hearts and they remind us of how much we love our kids. And they raise the little hairs on the back of our necks in abject terror. So that's what I mean by um, by recklessly alarming. It isn't quite reckless, but it's sort of a bad relationship between media and moms. And I think that in terms of gender, sure. Um, you know, right now a mother of sons is terrified about her boy going to war, and I, that is beginning to become something that can terrify the mothers of girls, too. Um, traditionally, the mothers of girls, because daughter's only option in most societies across most time was marriage, traditionally moms were terrified of having their child in some way, their daughter made in some way unable to marry. And currently, do you see a distinction? Um, I think variations. When I talk with my buddies, I have two sons, and when I talk with my female buddies who have daughters, you know, I think moms' anxieties and, and uh, about girls are still a little different from boys, but not anywhere near, I think, what they were. Sure, with a daughter, you worry about um, her getting harmed on a dark night on a dark street, and of course you worry about that with a son, but it's a different level of vulnerability, it seems to me. You mentioned before that um, 
the social institutions haven't caught up ideologically or institutionally. Uh, how do you propose to foment that catch-up? <laughs> By talking to you and uh, everybody else I can. I mean, I think that one of the things that is hard is that mothers often feel so guilty about working outside the home, for example, those mothers who do, that they can't take their own side in the fight very readily. They're reluctant to say go to their schools and say, you know what, we've got to change X, Y, and Z. A, because it's hard to find time when you're parenting and working, but B, because they're afraid that they'll be seen as bad mothers, as selfish, as irresponsible. So they hold back a lot. And as you know, anybody can see, the national discourse right now is dominated by such different, different notions um, where we're not, we're renouncing really in many ways the progressive mandate and really renouncing looking toward the future as a place where it's possible for life to be different. Well, you also talk about the need for a child to have what you call a free and happy mother. Indeed I do. Can and you uh, talk about that? Sure. Um, another thing that I discovered writing A Potent Spell is that you can read almost any era of history and almost any culture in the world, and you will be very, very hard-pressed to find one that has ever offered mothers any kind of social equality, which when you think about how many time, you know, centuries people have been on the world, how many millennia, um, it's staggering. And so I wondered about that. You know, why has no society, no culture, no place ever gone out of its way to try and make mothers equal? And as I was thinking about that, it really became very clear to me that um, this was what we needed most, that, in fact, um, children, and especially daughters, and I think maybe this is what you were getting at before that I didn't quite pick up on, daughters take their settings in life from their mothers. Mothers describe a world for their children that, and attempt to prepare their children to live in the world that the mother sees as being possible. So if you're a woman whose only chance in life, whose only possibility in life was to get married and you needed to make the best marriage you could in your village, then you're not going to tell your daughter to do anything different unless opportunities open up so that she might want to become an engineer, but you think she's crazy because you know that only marriage saves the daughter in that particular society at that particular moment. Consequently, if you want children to be imbued with rich opportunities and with what we would call a full humanism, then you have to offer that cultural context to their mothers because we pass on what we live. I'd like to ask you how you lived as a child, as a little girl. Um, your father, Bernard Malamud, um, was a well-known writer. Um, what influences did he and your mother bring to you that brought you to where you are now? That's a lovely question. Um, you know, my parents were both real, and my mother's still alive, but my father's been dead now for 16 years, but they were both deeply committed humanists. They believed in social justice. They believed in social change. They believed in uh, making a world that was fair to everyone. Um, and they were readers and, uh, 
and uh, just humanitarian sorts. My mother wasn't a social activist, and my father's social conscience was lived out in his writing. But those were the values, I think, that they passed on uh, to me and, and to my brother. And I think that um, what it's meant as I have come into my adulthood was that I both became a social worker and worked many years in a housing project clinic with uh, low-income residents. Um, and also, as I came to writing, um, it became very important for me to try and use writing as a way to articulate um, what I would call humanistic uh, or deeply humanistic uh, concerns about our everyday world. Do you feel that you're successful? Oh, gee, I hope so. Um, I, I, I don't make any big claims, but I think that it's um, work I enjoy doing. Well, the reason I ask is because of the mothers' magazines that have the endless stories about how children um, may be hurt. Uh, it's kind of like the newspapers talking about murders and robberies. No, that that's exactly true. And I guess that my hope is that what goes around will come around and that, you know, right now we're in a period where um, we're not thinking too progressively in my mind about how to solve a lot of our social problems. Um, but we go through waves in this country, and I'm hoping that we're gathering for a new one, and that part of that will be um, helping the media to uh, contain some of the worst of that kind of, that edge of, its, uh, of itself. Jana Malamud-Smith, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, that's a wonderful question, and I, for the moment, would choose Claire Tomlin's new biography of the English diarist from the 17th century, Samuel Pepys. And I'm sure people have heard about Pepys's diary, but if they don't know Claire Tomlin's new biography that just uh, won a big award at Whitbread in England, um, they could discover a delightful and engaging read. Um, Pepys is a great character, and he lived an amazing 17th century life filled with perils and surgery without anesthetic and a lot of bad behavior on his part. And, it, and he was a 17th century diarist. He kept sort of the first of the great, um, or the, really one of the greatest diaries ever. And people uh, listen, and read his, listen to on tape even and read his diaries. Um, he lived through the Great Plague and stuff. But this biography is... Uh, just it, it, well, it's remarkable. I mean, one of the great moments in it is when they take a manage to take a kidney stone the size of a tennis ball out of him, not using any anesthesia. It's a good, fun read. Jenna Malamud Smith, thanks for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Jenna Malamud Smith is the author of A Potent Spell: Mother Love and the Power of Fear. The book that she recommends is A Biography of Samuel Pepys by Claire Tomlin. Pepys is spelled P-E-P-Y-S. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, 
U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541 and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.